We come to you now and we ask uh, that you would open up your word to us. Help me to speak your word faithfully, with conviction, clarity, and give us understanding. Uh, the things of God are foolishness to those that don't know you. But for us who do know you, these words are life. They are encouragement. They are uh, letting us know about you. They're letting us know about ourselves. So help us as we go into your word uh, this morning to have minds that will pay attention and hearts that are ready to receive. And it might be put into our souls, into our inner being, the truths that are here, and that it might bear fruit, fruit of righteousness for your glory and honor. So we pray this in Christ's great name. Amen. Well, I've got some good news and some bad news. Every one of us heard that statement uh, before. Uh, there are oftentimes many jokes that are surrounding that statement. Many of us have probably said those words or had them said to us regarding some situation that we're facing. Maybe you go to the doctor and he says, I've got some good news for you and I've got some bad news for you. And uh, like the one man who went to the doctor and, you know, the doctor said that and, and then said, what do you want first? And well, I want the good news uh, first. So what's the good news? Well, the doctor says, well, my, my son's got uh, entrance into the college of his desires. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. What's the bad news? You're paying for it. <laughs> you probably heard that one before I have. But it, it kind of is funny. Uh, or you have the wife who, you know, says to her husband, I have some good news and some bad news. What do you want to hear first? And he says, well, what's the good news? The good news is that the airbags in your car work. <laughs> you don't need the bad news after that, do you? It's kind of understood. Um, but maybe it's, you know, economic or maybe it's relational or it's automotive or it's, you know, Whatever it is, there's good news and bad news. And what we will see in the second half of Romans 10 is Paul presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ as a good news, bad news uh, story. And, and that's the order in which the apostle presents his explanation of the gospel. But right now, we're going to reverse that order. Look at it. The bad news and the good news. So the bad news and it's just a statement, the bad news is that people have a sin problem, and sin causes death, eternal separation from God. The, the good news is that God has a remedy for the sin problem. There's a cure for it, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that resolves that problem. Now, last week, we, we saw how Paul presented the good news of the gospel as the remedy for our sin problem. He explained that the way to have a right relationship with God is through faith, right? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Believing that Jesus is Lord, that he's God, and that God the Father had raised him from the dead, that would be the ultimate proof of him conquering sin and death and securing a right relationship with God for those who believe in him. And that's what we saw last week. So through faith in those saving facts that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, people are delivered from the condemnation that they deserve for their sin. Amen? Thank you to people that said amen. Um, that is not just good news. I mean, that's absolutely great news. That is great news. Now we come to the last half of Romans 10 and, and we get a fuller description of the gospel as a good news, bad news story. However, rather than stating that the bad news is our sin problem and that the good news is that Christ is Lord and that he rose from the dead, he stresses that the good news is the gospel is a whosoever will may come message. So whosoever will may come message. And the bad news is that not all will come. Not all will respond positively to the good news of the gospel. And so Paul essentially breaks down this second half of chapter 10 into three segments. 
you'll see it as we go through it. First, he, he gives a presentation of the universal gospel. Secondly, he gives a proclamation of the universal gospel. And third, he shows the, the response or the reaction to the universal gospel. So I want to take, before we read it and go through it, I just want to take a, a moment to remind us that in this section of Romans, starting in chapter 9 and going through chapter 11, Paul is vindicating God's dealings with the Jews and the Gentiles, primarily with his dealings with the Jews who were not responding to the gospel. And he gives an explanation of why so many people in the nation of Israel were not being saved and were outside of the blessing of, uh, of the gospel and outside of relationship with God. So in chapter 9, he explained that the bulk of the nation, majority of the Jews, were being rejected by God because in his sovereignty, he never chose or elected all or every Jew to be saved. And then in the last part of chapter 9 and all the way through chapter 10, he explains that they were rejected by God because they had rejected the gospel. Divine sovereign election, human responsibility. They, they had sought a right relationship with God, he had expressed, through trying, trying, trying to be good enough by keeping the law, keeping the rituals, etc., etc., being better than other people, etc. Instead of trusting, they were trying instead of trusting. We talked about that last week. Trusting that Jesus... The Son of God, God himself, died for sins so that people could be set free through faith and faith alone in him. So with that background, we're going to take up Paul's good news, bad news message as he writes it. So grab your Bibles. I'm going to start reading in verse 11. We'll read through the end of the chapter. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame or not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written... How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So you can, you can certainly pick up what we've been saying throughout this section that Paul's addressing this issue of how God dealt with the Jews and the Gentiles, right? The Jews and the Gentiles. Now, we might think, well, th there's really no practical application to us. Well, there is plenty, and we're going to talk about it as we go through this. But, you know, the world has always been, since the time of Abraham, broken down into two people groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, the descendants of Abraham, and all who are not. It's always been that way in the economy of God. And there's all kinds of nations and so on, but it's either you're a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, or you are not, you're a Gentile. And sometimes it's translated as Greek, but the word for Greek or Gentile is the same. It's a word that means nations. Nations as opposed to the nation, which is God's chosen people, children of Abraham. So let's begin where Paul begins with the presentation of the universal gospel in verses 12 and 13. 
So if you're filling in your insert, that's what you want to put there first, the presentation of the universal gospel. So Paul presents the gospel, but his focus is on the universal nature of it. The universal nature of it. Paul's already written that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That was verses 9 and 10, right? And then he ended that thought by where we started reading in verse 11 by saying that everyone who believes in Christ will not be put to shame or not be disappointed. Tom referenced that earlier. Um, you know, there is, there is no disappointment in the Lord. He'll never disappoint you. When it comes to what is important, which is your eternal security. Now, you may feel like he disappoints you by not keeping you healthy or why did you wreck your car or, you know, all of that. Just living in a fallen world brings disappointment. But he'll never disappoint you when it comes to his love, his faithfulness, his caring for you, and his protection of you, securing your salvation. You will not be disappointed by him. So, the, what Paul is doing here. Uh, is he saying those those are the facts that are truly good news jesus is lord and god raised him from the dead so we can expand that a little and say jesus died for our sins and his death is sufficient because of who he is he is lord and he rose from the dead and because of who he is he's, he's able to secure our salvation forever right those are the saving facts and with verse 11, Paul had introduced the truth that the gospel is a whosoever will. He said, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So it's a whosoever will message. It's a universal appeal made to all people, right? Jew, Jews and Gentiles alike. There is no distinction. So if you're filling in your insert, no distinction. Paul goes on to say that in verse 12, that there's no distinction to be made between people. He puts it this way. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So this was the message that Paul preached every, when he went to any city. Every city that he took the gospel to, it was always, this is true. The Lord is the Lord of the Jews, and he's the Lord of the Gentiles. As part of the gospel message, he preached that. But that was a very difficult message for the Jews to hear or to believe. I mean, could Paul really, could he really mean that the Jews, the highly privileged descendants of Abraham, we talked about that in chapter 9 and already in chapter 10, the great benefits or privileges that they have, could it be that you know, in the eyes of God, they were not any better than the Greeks or the Gentiles, than the nations. And that was the message that Paul preached, and the majority of the Jews recoiled at hearing it. It's like, plug my ears, I can't hear this. And they fought against it with great intensity. If you read through Acts, and as Paul is presenting the gospel in various cities, you see how the Jews rose up against him. The, enemies, the enemy in, in Acts is not the Roman government, it's the Jews who are attacking him and what he preached. But, you know, that is the good news of the gospel. It is a whosoever will message. Amen. Now, the fact is the gospel is a message that crosses all boundaries. The gospel crosses all boundaries, all barriers. So this is a message that many people struggle with, actually. Not just the Jews in Paul's day, but people today still struggle with it. They, they may not wrestle against the Jew-Gentile distinction that Paul is making, although that still exists today, this hatred of God's chosen people, the Jews. Anti-Semitism is still alive and well today. But, you know, many people would say, well, I don't struggle with that. Of course, God is, you know, is reaching out to, to Jews and Gentiles alike. But they, there are many who would take issue with whether God could ever intend to choose and save any Arab people, especially those who are Muslims. Would God not distinguish between good people in the United States and those 
who are part of a cartel that are bringing drugs and violence and death into our country? Don't, don't you think that there are those who would disagree that God views white suburban folks the same as urban black or Hispanic populations? Certainly some would believe that God must make a distinction between homosexuals and heterosexuals, or not homosexual, maybe the non-binary people, or, or the, you know, the LGBTQIA dot 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 people. Certainly God must view them differently. Doesn't God, doesn't God care more for good and faithful church-going people than convicts in jails or prisons who are there because they are obviously evil people? Doesn't God make a distinction between people who work hard and provide a good living for their family and those who are homeless and suffer with maybe severe addiction issues or they just refuse to work? The list could go on, couldn't it? I mean, the way that people might struggle with this. So, you know, maybe the question that should be asked is this. Do we have wrong conceptions about who is, quote, worthy of the gospel. That question should bother us just hearing it because there are none, zero, nada, who are worthy of the gospel. Hmm. The point is that God does not make the same distinctions that we do, right? We make those distinctions. God does not. In fact, he makes no distinctions for the gospel is a whosoever will message. That's what Paul is saying. Now that is not to say that God doesn't see or notice distinctions between people. He knows that I'm a male and my wife is a female and you know he sees different races. He sees the distinctions in people's economic stations. He sees you know all of those things. He, it's not that he doesn't know those distinctions Exist, but that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about that the gospel is intended to breach all distinctions, differences between people, with a message that welcomes all to come to saving faith. Hmm. Paul clarifies it even further by saying, For the same Lord is Lord of all. And literally the Greek text just says, For the same Lord of all. He's the Lord of all. It is true. He's Lord of all people because he is the creator of all people, right? And this may mean more specifically that he is the Lord of anyone, everyone, no matter where they come from, who put their trust in him. He is the Lord of all. He's the Lord of all people who believe the saving facts about him in spite of their pre-existing race, gender, ethnic background, uh, religious background, moral background. He is the Lord of all who believe. Come on. You've got to say amen to something like that. Man. Do they say amen a lot down at the jail, Greg, when you're talking? Man. Don't make me come out of this pulpit and sit down and say amen and then come back up. Don't make me do that. <laughs> And beyond that, Paul adds, bestowing his riches on all who call him. Now, this isn't material riches that he's talking about, right? God is rich in grace and mercy, and his mercy is more, as we were singing, than our sin. He desires to shower, shower, pour out those riches of grace and mercy on all who will call on him in faith. He's rich in it. 2 Corinthians 8 9, you probably, many of you might know it by heart. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through him might become rich. Again, not talking about material riches. Riches of his grace and mercy and kindness and goodness, etc. God is so rich and he pours it out on us. And Paul completes his presentation of the universal gospel by quoting Joel 
2.32. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, if you go back and read Joel 2, you'll find that that is the section that Peter also quoted in Acts 2 in his first Christian sermon after the resurrection of the Christ. And it's all about the end times and what God was going to do in the end times, pour out his spirit upon all mankind, and there'll be visions and all of that. But he just quotes, Paul just quotes the kind of almost the last verse in that section, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, three specific things stand out about that verse, that statement. The first is the invitation. Fill in your blank. The invitation. It is an open invitation. Did you notice it says everyone or everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So it's a universal unlimited uh, message and it crosses all boundaries and barriers. Praise be the Lord. Amen. Secondly, the promise. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be Amen. saved, delivered, rescued, right? That was such a great word. Saved from the penalty of sin, which is the eternal separation from God. Saved from the power of sin in the present so that one can live in a manner that pleases God and is best for themselves. Saved in the future from the very presence of sin in our lives. What a promise. Saved. Amen. Saved. Are you saved? Hmm. And then the condition is given. A person must call on the name of the Lord. So this is the call to obey the gospel, right? The gospel calls people to do something be obedient to it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's written as an imperative. You must believe in order to be saved. Just as Jesus had said, I mentioned last week in John 6, to the Christ who said, what works of God must we do to, to be right with God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God. Not works plural, but works singular. It's God's work in you rather than your work for him. But the one work that will save you is believe in the, his son whom he has sent. And, and so this is the condition of the gospel. There is a condition. It's freely given, salvation is. But there is a condition, and that is call on the name of the Lord in faith, believing that he is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead, that he paid for your sins so that you might be right with him forever. And so the presentation of the gospel is one which presents people with good, great, glorious news. Amen? And it's universal in nature. Okay. Next, the proclamation of the universal gospel. And that's verses 14 and 15. So again, let me read those verses. How then will they call on him? him in whom they have not believed and how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard and how are they to hear without someone preaching and how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news so it stands to reason doesn't it that if the presentation of the gospel is that it is universal in nature, that it is a whosoever will message, then the proclamation of that message should be universal also. Right? It's universal also. And that's, what, that's where these verses come into play. These two verses are Paul's expression of how that good news message gets out to the universe, so to speak, out to the world. Hmm. He knew well, Paul knew well, the command of the Lord Jesus to his disciples on the day they rose back up into heaven. In Acts chapter 1, verse 18, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, right? To the ends of the earth. So Paul knew that. And so he's explaining how that message was to get out to the Jews to all in Judea, Samaria, and to all the Gentiles. Here's how it gets out. And his, in his explanation, he puts forth a series of questions. That's how he expresses But as we read through it, I'm sure you probably picked up on this, that they're written in a regressive order rather than a progressive order. 
It's like a, a countdown. Four, three, two, one. And so the first question he asks is, how then will they call on him be in whom they have not believed? So basically what he's saying is, before the call must come faith. Before a person calls on the name of the Lord, there must be belief that he is Lord, right? That's what he's saying. So before a confession of Christ can be made, a person must believe the saving facts. And this means that the mind, the intellect, has to come into play. It has to. The right facts must be believed for it to result in justification, being declared righteous by God. Now, this is important, I think, particularly in our day, I see it, that people are so often moved emotionally to respond to what they hear or what they, you know, what they want to be delivered from, maybe a bad marriage or sickness or health issues or, you know, that kind of thing. They respond, they hear, you know, about God's love for them and all of that, and they kind of respond emotionally believing, you know, that God will give them what they want. It oftentimes is uh, the prosperity gospel that they're, they're paying attention. Well, I'm poor. I want to be rich. And, and they tell me if I believe in God, then I'll be, you know, treated like a, an heir of Christ. And he owns everything, so I guess I get to own everything and, and all of that. So they respond emotionally to it, but they oftentimes are misinformed or underinformed about what they must believe to be saved. This is where the intellect, the mind, comes into play. They must believe the right things. The sharing of the gospel, then, is not so much about getting someone to respond emotionally to God, but helping them to understand the truth. The truths about themselves as sinners, about God as, and what he's done through his son, who is the Savior, what he's accomplished for those that will put their faith in him. We have to get the right truths out there. And that brings up the second question, which is in how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And so with that, what he's saying is that before belief, the message must be heard. So before the call, there has to be faith. And before there's faith, the message has to be heard. And again, this is emphasizing that if we're going to be used by God in his calling of sinners to salvation, we must learn to clearly articulate the gospel. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brian. Kind of figured you'd say that. Uh, way of the master guy, you know. I mean, that's, that's so important in the way of the master. They need to hear the right things. You know, they call sinners to salvation. A person's faith has to be in the right truths for them to be saved. I'll, I'll tell you this, that over the years, Pastor Tom and I have had many conversations about when we've been speaking with someone that we're pretty convinced are they're a Christian. We've known them a long time. Maybe they've been part of the church for a long time. But, you know, one of us will, may, or both of us may have a conversation with them. And so we may just ask, so when and how did you come to be saved? When and how did you get a right relationship with God? And then to hear them describe that just raises all kinds of confusion for us. Because they're saying things like, well, I've always believed in God. And, you know, I, I was raised to believe, you know, in Christ. And, you know, I've gone to church my whole life. And it's like, what am I hearing? This is like the Jews. This is like what Paul has been addressing, right? And, and I, that doesn't mean that we conclude at that moment, oh, they're not really Christians. We need to share the truth with them. It, we generally think they need to learn how to articulate their faith. And all the evidence seems to point to the fact that they're believers, but yeah, they surely are not getting the, the truth out very clearly even to someone who wants to hear it, let alone those that maybe wouldn't want to hear it. So the message must be heard for people to believe, but what they hear must be clear, not confusing, right? Amen. When we share the good news with others, 
we must learn to communicate the true saving facts. That's what Paul is presenting. So from there he moves to his third question, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? So what is this implying? Well, before the message can be heard, there has to be a messenger. Right? Before the message can be heard, there has to be a messenger. So God has chosen, if you didn't know this, know now, God has chosen people <laughs> to share his message of forgiveness with the lost. And, and, and while it is true that some people will be saved by reading their Bible, reading the Gospels, they can be saved that way. Others might get saved by reading a tract. You know, that someone gives them, that's not the majority of people. That's a, a very, very small percentage of people who come to know the Lord that way. And the way that God intended it to happen is through his people sharing the saving facts with those who are lost. And they might come to know uh, the gospel. It takes our mouths opening up and sharing the truth of the gospel with lost people for them to come to know the Lord. Yeah, but uh, that, can we go back to that divine sovereign thing? Yeah, absolutely, we, we can. God sovereignly chooses and God sovereignly commissions. Right? He commissions us to share the gospel so that his choice will come about in their lives. Okay, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment, but um, we must not think as we read this where it says, how are they here without someone preaching or some translations might have without, versions might have without a preacher, you know. Uh, we have to not be confused here. The meaning of the word preaching is not restricted to a preacher or to a pastor, you know, who stands up in a pulpit like I'm doing and declaring the gospel like I'm doing. I mean, I'm, I'm doing that, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. The Greek word keruso, which is the word that's translated as preaching, refers more to a proclaimer or a herald. It's almost like a guy who blows a trumpet. Pay attention. And that doesn't mean the preacher, the missionary, the evangelist. It means whoever knows the Lord who has an opportunity to share the gospel should proclaim it. How will they hear unless you proclaim it to them? So each and every believer should be a herald of the gospel. And then the final question that he raises, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? And all that means is before, the, before there's the messenger, there's the sender, Right? Before the messenger, there's the sender. And some may think that this again refers to a church sending out a missionary to a foreign country. Um, but it's not restricted to, to this. I mean, you see that in the scriptures. Acts 13, the church sent out Paul and Barnabas. We see it today. We, we support missionaries like Greg and Kim, like Kia. We support them. We send them out to where God has called them, we support them in that. But that's not restricted to that in this passage. And it's more likely referring to the divine commission that God gives to his people to share the gospel. So, you know, there is the notion of higher authority that is in this. It's implicit in the idea of a sender and that there is one who is sent. And in fact, even the word translated sent uh, you know, how are they to preach unless they are sent? That word comes from the same Greek word, that, a root word that is translated apostle. Apostello in its ver verbal form, but it, it's used here not of the apostles, but in its generic form, meaning you're sent with a commission. Jesus was the sent one. Same root word is used of him. The apostles were sent ones. That's the meaning of that term. But there were all sent ones in that sense. I, I believe that the sender is none other than God, not the church. The sender is God. And those who are sent are those who have already 
heard and believed and responded in a positive way to the gospel call. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 9:38, which we pray on a regular basis, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest, right? Well, who are the laborers? We are. That's right. What is the harvest? Lost souls. Clearly, that is what he's talking about. It's in the context of his conversation with the woman at the well. And uh, she went, and she was a laborer who went into the harvest and told the city people about the Lord. And then the disciples had come back after she had left, and, and that's when he said, pray the Lord would, you know, to God that he would send out laborers into the harvest. Well, he has. He sent us. Now, in his priestly prayer in the garden, uh, the night he was betrayed uh, by Judas, he had prayed this, As you sent me into the world, so him talking to the Father, so I have sent them into the world. You say, well, that was the apostles, right? Well, no, right in the context in John 17, the, what the apostles were to preach was to reach all people, and then they would themselves become, people would preach or proclaim the gospel to others. They preached it, we believed it, we believe it, we say it, other people believe it, they say it. That's the way that was intended to come across. And then again, I already mentioned Acts 1.8, he commissioned the disciples to be his witnesses in all the world. And while that commission was certainly directly related to the apostles and their responsibility to share the gospel and to you know, start the church and, and, and all of that, or build up the church, which is the body of Christ. It's still us who are commissioned to do the same thing. And, and the same commission that God gives to them, he gives to us to be ambassadors to share the gospel of reconciliation with the lost, with those who are separated from God. That's what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians five seventeen and 18, where he says, all this is from God, who is, uh, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciled, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And while that may have more direct interpretation related to Paul and his traveling troop, it certainly has application for us. God has given us the message that says you can be right with God. You can be reconciled to God. You're an enemy, a sinner, separated, unable to do anything about it, but God wants you to be right with him. That's the message of reconciliation. And then Paul ends with verse 15 as he talks about this uh, proclamation. He ends with a quote from Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 7. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good, ne good news. I love that. The context of Isaiah's words describes the exuberance with which the, the, the Jewish exiles welcomed the news of their imminent deliverance or release from 70 years of exile in Babylon. That's the context of Isaiah 52. The, you know, the message was good. The 70 years is over. 70 years prophesied by Jeremiah, it's over. You're going to be released. You can come back to the Holy Land, so on. How beautiful were the feet of those people who brought, bore that good news of deliverance. Their, listen, their feet would have been dusty and ugly and dirty, you know, as they came over the rise and into the city to proclaim it. But it wasn't talking about their feet. It's talking about the message, right? How beautiful are the feet, the, the, the messengers who bring the good news of freedom from their captivity. Well, how much more beautiful are the feet then of those who carry the good news of the gospel, a message of deliverance from captivity to sin and to death? So, those who share the gospel with others, they've got beautiful feet. Do we? Do we have beautiful feet? Are we sharing the, the, the glorious good news of the gospel with those who are still held captive by Satan and sin and death? 
And so the gospel is a universal message, right? And it is our responsibility to proclaim that message to the lost. That is the good news part of Paul's presentation here in chapter 10. Um, and he's going to move on. The bad news found in the remaining part of this chapter in verses 16 through 21. So, in, in these last verses, Paul presents the bad news that even though the gospel, gospel's invitation is universal, it is to whosoever, whosoever will, and it contains such a glorious promise of salvation from sin, the fact is, not everyone's going to respond favorably to the gospel message. In fact, most will not. That's what he stresses in these verses. He begins by indicating that the gospel is largely disregarded. If you're filling in your insert, that's what you want to put there, is largely disregarded by people. That's what he means when he says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So while Paul is referring specifically in the context to the to the nation of Israel and their overwhelming rejection of the gospel. And the word all is stressing that not all of them believed. In fact, very few of them had believed. The word also is broad enough to include the Gentiles as well, right? And it's true that as Paul shared the gospel, not all the Gentiles believed either. In fact, the majority would not. And the quote from Isaiah 53.1 that we just read shows that what had been pro prophesied so many centuries before was coming true. So many centuries. Nearly 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah proclaimed that God would send his Messiah and that he would bring them deliverance, not just from their enemies, but from their sin. But Isaiah's prophecy shows that they would not believe the message of the gospel. And so when Isaiah's suffering servant shows up and came to the nation, they did not receive him. John 1.11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. However, this was not just true for the Jews. This is true for the Gentiles as well. And it's still the case today. Therefore, we should know, we should know this, that when we share the gospel with lost people, it's going to be largely disregarded. Don't be surprised by that. Well, verse 17 may seem out of place here, you know, where it says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's really not out of, uh, out of its sink because the thought of hearing just appeared in verse 16, right? Where it says, for Isaiah says, who has believed what he has heard from us? And so Paul says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But it's not just hearing the words, right? It's believing the words that matters. People need to hear the gospel to be saved. And, and those who hear, verse 16, the call to obey will be saved. And all others who hear and do not obey the gospel to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will not be saved. Human responsibility. And Paul goes on in the rest of the paragraph to show that not only will the gospel be largely disregarded, Knowledge it will... Knowledge is good. Really? I, thought, I think that is true as well. Knowledge is good. I have no idea why Siri just told me that. But knowledge is good. <laughs> yeah. This is just too weird. So, it's largely disregarded, but it's also scornfully rejected. That's what you want to write in. It's scornfully rejected by many. In, in verses 18 and 19, Paul puts forward two questions that the objector would raise. Remember the objector? We're going to talk about it all through Romans. These two questions that he writes out uh, in verse 18 and 19 are the questions that the objector would raise. And the first one is, but I ask, have they not heard? Or the idea that they haven't heard, have they? They haven't heard 
the good news. And his answer to the objector is that they, the Jews in particular, certainly have heard the message. And that's what he says. Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Now, if you know that, you see that that's a quote from the Old Testament. It's from Psalm 19 and verse 4. Which is interesting because in Psalm 19, verses 1 through uh, 7 or 6, it is all about creation's voice. That the creation speaks of the glory of God. It sends out silent words. It's like, that seems kind of weird because Paul's talking about you need to hear actual words of truth about Christ to be saved. So why is he quoting Psalm 19.4? His point is not to describe how the Jews had heard the gospel through creation, but that as creation itself spreads the revelation of God throughout the world, so the gospel message was being spread throughout. Actual words were being spread about Christ throughout the world. And he's not saying that every Jew or every person in the world had heard the gospel. We know that that's not the case. Still today, there are many unreached people groups, right? So, he's not saying that. What he is saying is that the gospel has, had been spread already, the time that he writes this, throughout the world enough that the Jews in particular could not use the, the excuse that it had not been heard because the gospel spread rapidly in the Jewish community because it was not necessarily positive things like, have you heard about this guy? He's, you know, he's saying this about the law. He's saying this about Moses and so on and so forth. It was spreading like wildfire. So the second question raised by the objector that, you know, is that perhaps the trouble was that Israel didn't comprehend. They didn't comprehend what they had heard. He writes it this way. But I ask, did Israel not understand? Or you could say, Israel didn't understand, did they? And Paul answers that question with two more quotes, one from Moses and one from Isaiah. He says, first Moses says, I will make you, a jeal uh, make you jealous, you being the Jews, jealous of those who are not a nation, Gentiles, with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those Gentiles who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. So this is, of course, uh, referring to the Gentile nations, as I just mentioned. Israel did know. They did know, or they should have known, that the gospel was intended to reach the Gentiles and the Jews. They knew Abraham. They knew the promise God had made to Abraham. I'm going to make you a blessing to all the earth, to all nations. They knew that God had made it clear that the nation was to be a missionary light to the nations, to draw others to God. It was built within the Old Testament that it was to be broader than the Jewish people. They should have known the gospel was intended to reach the Gentiles as well as the Jews. So their scornful rejection of Jesus as the Christ and their refusal to believe the gospel preached by the apostles to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews was predicted by God. That's the point. This scornful rejection was predicted, it was prophesied by God in both the law, Moses, and in the prophets, Isaiah. God had said some 1,500 years before the coming of Christ that he would make his chosen nation jealous and angry by accepting Gentiles into his kingdom. They should have known that. They should have comprehended that. They had heard, and they should have comprehended it. And therefore, Paul quoted Moses and Isaiah to make it clear that Israel's scornful rejection of the gospel came as absolutely zero surprise to God. <laughs> right? Things surprise me all the time. Sometimes I think, I don't know why I'm surprised about that. It's just as clear as day. Sometimes I get surprised by, you know, some of the stuff that, 
progressives will come out with. Or why they will fight for whales but not for babies. Or, you know, things surprise me. It's like, I, I really shouldn't be surprised by those things because they don't know God. They don't have the value of life that God does, that I do because of knowing God. But nothing ever, ever, ever surprises God. So, in fact, what this is indicating is that it was through the rejection of Christ through the Jews' rejection of Christ and the gospel, that salvation would be found by the Gentiles, by those who were not seeking him and those who didn't ask for him. That's what he's saying. So you get it in those, in those verses, it's talking about the Gentiles. And then he switches from the Gentiles who were not asking to know God, but were drawn to him by his grace. Paul returns to the Jewish people. As for Israel, it was God's chosen people, but who had largely disregarded or scornfully rejected, you know, Christ and the gospel, God was still speaking to them. God was still speaking to them, and that's what he says. All day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. That's God speaking. That's not Paul speaking. God speaks this all day long. I hold out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So ever, this is saying ever since, ever since their deliverance from slavery in Egypt, time of Moses, the children of Israel demonstrated that they were disobedient and contrary or obstinate uh, people. And, and yet through all their stubborn rebellion that you can think of as you read through your Old Testament, you see it over and over and over again. Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? We don't have any water. We don't have any food. We don't have any bread. We don't have, you know, it's like you, you brought us out here to die. What's wrong with you? What, God, you're unfaithful. And it's like they're constantly rebellion. We don't want Moses. We want a new leader. Take us back to Egypt. Uh, you know, honor the Lord. Keep the, keep the, uh, you know, the laws. And don't, don't ever, you know, worship any of those false gods of the people that you're going to rid the, the land of. And what did they do? They just started worshiping those gods. I mean, it's over and over again. They were obstinate. They were disobedient. And all day long, God was reaching his hands out to them. His loving, grace-filled, mercy-filled hands were reaching out to them. Uh, to me, it, it reminds me of what Jesus said on the day they entered Jerusalem in the, in the beginning of the last week of his life before he suffered and died for our sin. As he came a place on the road and he overlooked the, the city of Jerusalem, he said, Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I, I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Right out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus himself. It proclaims the Lord's loving hands reaching out. I would gather you. I would gather you. I would, I would give you. I would protect you. I would love you forever. But you will not. Because you are obstinate. You are disobedient. Now, one more comment to be made uh, before I kind of wrap this up. Paul has made some strong statements about divine sovereign election in chapter 9. And in this chapter, particularly, starting in 9 the latter, latter part of 9, but moving through chapter 10, he's focused on Israel's or human responsibility. So you've got divine sovereign election and human responsibility. We've talked about that already. Now, you know, the fact that both are talked about doesn't cancel out one or the other. Divine sovereign election doesn't cancel out human responsibility, nor does human responsibility revoke God's absolute sovereignty in salvation. I mean, they are unflinchingly joined together in the appeal of the gospel. If we're to understand what Paul's saying in Romans 9, 10, 11, we must hold both truths, divine sovereign election, human responsibility, in our hands, no matter how hard or difficult we find it to reconcile them. Hold them in your hands. Hold them in your heart. Both are absolutely true. So, there's a few questions 
very brief that I feel compelled to ask as we bring this sermon to a close. And the first is, I feel like I have to ask it, even though I think I know the answer to it, particularly with the people who are here. But are you certain? Are you certain that you have, in fact, trusted in the saving truths concerning uh, Christ and, and, and faith and the good news? Is that what you're genuinely trusting in to be right with God? I, I hope you're certain of that. I hope you are. You're not, you're not trusting in you're a good person or you're better than most or that, you know, you're a churchgoer or, you know, you, you, you honor aged people and you pray for the nation and you all these kinds. No, you trust in the saving facts. The second question is, if you're here today and if you would see yourself as one who is largely disregarded or to this point, scornfully rejected the truth of the gospel, won't you turn to him today? And that's why God would have you here, so that you could hear this, so that you would turn and repent and believe in the gospel and be saved and be right with God. And the third question is one that I hinted at earlier. How beautiful are your feet? How beautiful are your feet? I mean, if we've trusted in Christ, then we have the privilege and the responsibility of sharing the good news of the gospel with others. We should love to tell the story, whether it's telling the story to, know, to those who know it best or to tell the story to the rest. We should love to tell the story of Jesus and his love, as the old hymn said. The story is told of a captain of a Mississippi River boat who, as his ship was passing another vessel on the river, he, he grabbed the first passenger that was near him and, and, he, and he said to him, Look, look over there at that other boat. Look over at that other boat. Look at its captain. And the, the man was kind of bewildered. He was like, ah, okay, I see the captain. Why do you want me to look at him? What makes him so special? And then that captain began to tell the story to the passenger about how uh, on a previous occasion his own vessel had collided with another vessel and it was foundering and in the process he, the, the, the captain, was thrown overboard. And, and the captain of the other vessel saw his desperation and he maneuvered close enough that he was able to dive into the water and rescue the other captain from death. He saved his life. And after telling the story, the one saved captain turned the passenger and he said, ever since that day, I want to point out my rescuer to others. He saved my life. Well, that makes sense. I don't know if that's a true story if someone made up a beautiful illustration, but it is, it is a good illustration. Because we who have been saved and secured and loved by Jesus, we should want to tell others about our rescuer, the one who saved our lives from certain eternal death. So, in, in conclusion, final words. Well, yeah, kind of final words. You never know what to, to think when a preacher says that. In conclusion... What remains, as Paul used to write, if you do share Christ, the gospel, with others, you can be certain that many, maybe most, will largely disregard what you say. Some may even scornfully reject what you share with them. They'll get mad at you. They'll yell at you. They'll call you names. Remember, if they do that, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Christ. Kind of like, with Samuel. Samuel, God, God, the people have rejected me. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. Same thing. So, final thought. It's at the bottom of your insert. Though people are bound to step on your toes, don't let that keep you from having beautiful feet. Lord, we are thankful for the clarity that Paul gives to the gospel message. 
That is your sovereign plan to, to save sinners that matters. It's not our plan to be saved. It's your plan to save sinners. And you chose, you elected certain ones that you would draw in your grace and mercy to salvation. And others you let go to the end that they choose for themselves. And that message also includes our responsibility as those who have been rescued to share the gospel with others because that is how you, in fact, work out your sovereign choosing of people to come into a right, right relationship with you. So help us to be obedient and faithful, be ambassadors for you. Use us, Lord, and uh, thank you that it is, the message is so clear that no one will have an excuse when they stand before you, as Paul wrote in chapter 1. They're not going to be able to say, well, I didn't hear, I didn't understand. No, there will be no excuse. The responsibility falls on them to whether they will believe and receive the truth of the gospel. But let us be the ones that share that with them, Lord. Help us be faithful. Give us hearts and minds that will seek and look for opportunities to share it. And have your way, both in our church and your church abroad in sharing this glorious good news. Thanks, too, for the food that you provide for us that we're going to eat today. You're so good to us. We praise your holy name. Amen.